Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast from Netflix. I'm Ray Vada, and I'm hosting this week's episode. Here on You Can't Make This Up, we go behind the scenes of Netflix original true crime stories with special guests. This week, we're getting into the Ted Bundy tapes. This four-part docuseries follows the crimes of one of America's most notorious killers, Ted Bundy. From 1974 to 1978, Bundy committed a multitude of crimes, including murdering over 30 women in seven states. The series is based on the book of the same name, written by journalist and author Stephen Michaud. Stephen recorded over 100 hours of his interviews with Ted Bundy, which the series features heavily. While previously you could read transcripts of the interviews in Stephen's book, this is the first time we're able to hear them and listen to Ted Bundy in his own words. We brought in journalist Taylor Crumpton, who has written about Ted Bundy for Teen Vogue and covers social justice in publications like Paper Mag and Glamour. So let's get to that interview. Stephen, thank you so much for talking to me this morning. How are you? I'm just fine. We're getting ready to get frozen to death here, but right now it's just great. Oh, no, that's terrible. (laughs) So for listeners who don't know you, could you briefly explain your connection to the docuseries? I'm Stephen Michaud, and back in the early 1980s, I uh, conducted a series of journalistic interviews with Ted Bundy at the Florida State Prison over a period of about six months. And those conversations became the basis of the docuseries, uh, Conversations with a Killer. Uh, There are tapes as well that my partner Hugh Ainsworth uh, recorded with Bundy in the same period of time. And I know um, as someone who has watched this series, um, you spoke about how you recorded over 100 hours of tape with him and you were very personal. Y'all had similar shared lived experiences of growing up in the Vermont and Seattle area. So could you kind of speak about how it was even being in that room with him consistently? Well, these, these interviews were done for the most part in a small office right in the center of the prison. Uh, It had windows on three sides, and um, Ted and I would sit together at a table uh, with two chairs and an ashtray. It it was very claustrophobic, and it was also—there were lots of things to to make you nervous. In my case, I had misrepresented myself when I went into the prison. I said that I was an investigator for for the appeals attorneys, and that wasn't true. I had a private investigator's license, but um, I just knew that if I said I was a journalist, they weren't going to let me walk in and out of the prison for six months to interview their most famous serial killer. So all the way through that, the back of my head was, God, are they listening to this? And at what point are they going to come in and grab me by the scruff of my neck and march me out or march me into my own, you know, my own cell? So that was that was one level of nervousness. Uh, there was also the the constant stress of basically sparring with a sociopath. Uh, I didn't know what a sociopath was when I w- first went in there. I mean, I think I probably could have told you that it's a person who uh, lacks any remorse for anything that they've ever done, and uh, they can't feel any guilt. Never having consciously encountered a sociopath... I didn't know how their minds worked. Um, I got a lesson. I got real, I got really schooled by the time I was through with Ted. And then there was, on top of that, the problem that 
Ted was claiming still at that time that he was totally innocent, which was patently untrue. So I had to figure out a way to coax him into talking about what I wanted to discuss with him, that is, the murders. And that required, in the end, just taking taking a, a guess that the way into Ted's head was to treat him basically like a 12-year-old, because in a lot of ways, that's all that he was. He, had, he, he was a case of arrested development. And I said to Ted, you know more about these cases, all of these cases all over the country, than, than anybody. Tell me from your expert point of view, what led to these killings? What motivated the, the person to do them? What went on inside his head? What was the objective? Why were these women killed? And anything else you can add to help me understand this this person? And uh, Ted grabbed the tape recorder out of my hand and kind of curled himself around it and lit a cigarette, and off we went. Um, and for the next six months, most of it was Ted conducting a monologue uh, with me prompting him from time to time and lighting his... Uh, cigarettes and uh, changing the tapes. Yeah, I've noticed that in the past several years, there's been this spike in content regarding true crime, the movie that's coming out starring Zac Efron. There's new documentaries coming out every day about serial killers and kind of like this history. So how do you feel about the uprise in this current phenomenon? Well, in some ways, I guess it's just a new generation discovering these guys. I mean, the, the original interest in serial killers came in the 1970s. The term wasn't even known. And when, I, when I first met Ted, nobody had ever used the term serial killer. Um, but he and a lot of other guys just sort of seemed to come out of the woodwork at the same time. There were maybe 10 or 15 of them that, that every, everybody knew their names. They were kind of a, a select circle of aberrant offenders. I think that people who you know didn't live through all of that are, are sort of newly aware of what went on and what is probably still going on. I think, you know, instead of driving around the way Ted did uh, and other guys did, I think most of them are probably operating on the Internet. Mm-hmm. I've been thinking a lot about Ted Bundy in the kind of context of this new generation that you've spoken of. Um, when we're in the eras of Me Too and awareness around sexual assault and violence for folks with marginalized identity. And especially in Ted's case, I was curious about how much of his kind of anonymous being able to walk into a crowd and not be seen is tied a lot to his white male privilege and his identity. Because several times throughout the documentary series, we kind of witness this very positive treatment of Ted by law enforcement officials. And even in the Florida trial, you know, at the end of it, the judge kind of compliments him for his actions in the courtroom, for defending himself, even making a statement that, I wish you were a lawyer so you could practice in front of me. So I saw several times throughout this series that a lot of this confusion because Ted in my opinion, kind of weaponized his white male identity to hide in plain sight. And I was curious if you um, kind of saw any of that in your reporting or maybe thinking of it now um, as we're talking about, you know, these intersectional uh, social justice movements, if you think that Ted's whiteness had anything to play in his anonymous factor. Those are all good points. My consciousness was not nearly 
raised enough back in 1980 to think of this in, in those terms. But there's truth in what you say. Ted's whiteness and his blandness worked very much in his favor. As, as a sociopath, he worked very hard at making himself appear friendly, appear you know, kind of concerned, mild. Uh, one of the things that was important in his story in understanding Ted was the number of people who knew him who were absolutely persuaded he could not have done any of these crimes. But to help put a little more focus on your points, not only was he a, a white male, but he was a Republican and a, uh, a, and a four-square Republican. Mm-hmm. And you could go further. His victims were all white women. Um, I, don't think he, I don't think he attacked a single woman of color. Yeah. Most serial killers tend to have a kind of profile uh, victim, and, and many of them focus, for instance— on prostitutes. Some of them focus on old people. Ted took what he liked to think of as high-value targets. These were, for the most part, college co-eds, attractive young women, all white, all going to large, respectable institutions. And to give you, you know, to give you something more to think about, part of what he was doing was getting his revenge because he felt that he had been passed over. Yeah, I think his anger was so rooted in his whiteness. And if we look at whiteness, it's this kind of power structure and dynamic of very much ownership and control, which even is kind of reminiscent of how he committed acts of sexual assaults against his victims. And I was thinking about in the context of a lot of sexual assault movements, whether it be Me Too, whether it be Harvey Weinstein, whether it be some other charges, there's always kind of like this feeling of ownership and control, like this is mine, I can exact control upon it. And I saw that a lot throughout the series with Ted and how his relations with women or those who identified as female always came from this like aggressive, defiant standpoint. Well, yes, again, Ted notably said to me one time that the, the object of what this person was doing was possession. He, the word was possession, and, and he said, as you might possess a potted plant or a painting or a Porsche. But objectification taken to a malignant level, I, I think that those that his victims were in some ways completely abstract to him. Mm-hmm. It was important, I know, not to have conversations with them. He said that he would, you know, he he would only talk to them enough to get them in a compromised position where he could uh, immobilize them or kill them. You know, he did not chat with them over a long period of time. And he said that there was always a problem if he did, that they would start emerging as a, as a human, as a real person, and would screw up his fantasy. I find it troubling to talk to other men uh, of, of any age, and th- the conversations tend to run towards wonderment about, wow, how did he do that? One of the things that we tried to do in the books, and I think, again, that the series also does, is point out that Ted was a coward. There was nothing difficult about what he did. And, and he and I spoke about this a great deal, that in those days, you probably could get away with kidnapping and killing young women 
much easier than you could stealing stuff from a supermarket. And I know it sounds bizarre, but I think it's functionally true that serial murder is actually one of the simpler crimes to get away with uh, and one that, that to a certain set of men and serial killers are overwhelmingly males, the rewards, the potential rewards in their value system are wonderful. You get to possess what you want to possess, a, a dead woman. When our possessions, beings which are subservient more often than not to males, women are merchandise. From the pornographic through Playboy right on up to the evening news. But I think Ted, you know, he spoke a lot about wanting to be an attorney and wanting to be a political activist and wanting to kind of garner this center and a fame. And it seemed like almost as if he was entitled to be the center of attention. He always wanted to be in charge of his narrative and story, um, whether that was first with you um, and he kind of just wanted to speak about his childhood and not pay attention to the murders that he committed or um, whenever he was arrested trying to talk to the presser as far as being co-counsel when he had no law degree. He always tried to place himself in the center. And for me, I think it's because all the values that he grew up with told him that he could be the center of attention as a white male. There's something there's something else to, that you have to bear in mind with him is that he, as is typical of these guys, uh, was a narcissist and he was paranoid. And those those two personality flaws or personality disorders interplay very uh, closely across his life. For example, when Ted was in court, the paranoia... Um, uh, reveals itself in his distrust for his attorneys uh, that he thought they were plotting against him. And the narcissism uh, drove him to make a spectacle of himself. So he's, you know, I'm not arguing with, with any of your insights, but I sometimes think of Ted as this big ball of energy, malignant energy, being guided by these you know what they say in meteorology, the steering winds of, of his other, of his paraphilias of, and, and of his, uh, his other personality disorders. I guess, again, I'm being really circuitous here, but I, I think that, that Ted, well, I know that Ted was not particularly self-aware. When we started talking about him in the third person, he had really no clue. I mean, I really honestly believe this. He had no clue as to how it happened that he started doing what he started to do. He told me details, how it grew, I mean, the stages of it and all the rest of it. I remember him saying to me one time, he faulted what he became, he faulted society. And what he faulted society for was giving people such as him too many choices. And his way of illustrating that was to say that perhaps if this individual, as he often referred to himself, was raised in a really highly restrictive hierarchical society, that all of this evil plasma inside of him would have expressed himself in demon stamp collecting. <laughs> um, <laughs> and this, this, this then gets us back to the fascination with Ted, uh, is that he was brilliant at exploiting the structure of society, I guess is a way to say it, the, the, the presuppositions, the uh, kind of 
undigested assumptions about how things are. Uh, so yeah, I think a lot. I think all of, all of what you say is uh, is true. I was thinking about how you brought up how Ted represented himself um, during the trial. And it was very similar to me to how the Charleston shooter, Dylan Roof, also represented himself during the trial. And if you look at their case, um, even Dylan's legal team attempted to utilize the competency test um, to kind of make sure that he didn't have those graphs of the responsibility on his actions. And if even if you look at his case, it's so similar to Ted, um, how he proclaimed that he was innocent, how he represented himself. And then if we want to get very eerily, how the police department treated Dylan Roof in a very similar manner to how Ted Bundy was treated. I mean, there was um, meals given to him. There was like this very kind of assumptions of like, He's a good guy. It's all good, even though both of them had committed these very violent acts. So if we're kind of looking at like this archetype that Ted Bundy has laid down, it has really kind of like butted into these other white male serial killers who were utilizing the same kind of foundation that he built decades before that we're still seeing now. My filter tells me that what I'm hearing is that these societal structures are still very much in place. And they still encourage the development of the of the kind of behavior that we saw with Ted. Maybe, maybe not so artful as Ted was, and maybe that you know that as we you know we learn more about these guys, maybe the law enforcement uh, officials are further up the learning curve. I I mean I I'll, I'll give you an example when Bundy when Bundy first became active. Uh, in the early 1970s, there was a lot of pushback from veteran detectives who said, you know, we know who kills people. We know who people kill people that they know, and they kill them. And if not, they kill them for a really obvious reason, anger, money to, you know, to hide, you know, hide their, their identity. Uh, and these either blood or familial connections or the obvious motive uh, is what you have to follow when you're trying to solve the crime. And Ted came along and and showed the world, no, 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 no. In fact, that's the last thing that I would, I would do. I mean, I killed strangers, and I killed them for a reason. And so there was an institutional groupthink that prevented the cops from even considering a guy like Ted, because he 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 didn't, he didn't meet any of their expectations, and they and they refused to even look at it, so that that was a huge advantage for him, and it was true, in every jurisdiction, that the problem in stopping him had a lot to do with the fact that no one no one could feature somebody just going around killing people because he wanted to kill them. Mm-hmm. There was no rational motive for anything that he did. He was an aberrant killer. It was it was outside of their ken, and it really was outside their ken. Uh, and Ted had such a knowledge on how police departments work. I know in this series it talked about how he had an internship or some type of position um, within the Seattle Police Department and kind of figured out how these um, departments worked in silos, never being in communication with each other. And it seems that in a sense, he may have had a fondness for law enforcement because even when the um, escaped survivor went and 
identified him, he changed his appearance to match the law enforcement officers because he knew that he could easily blend in and to assimilate. So I always saw continuing during the series that he knew whenever he was in trouble or was going to get caught to assimilate into this kind of position of power and privilege in which he could hypothetically walk through a wall. Hmm. Well, let me give you some other little tidbits that, that are consistent with that. Ted used uh, various guises uh, when he was prowling, stalking for victims. One of them was the victim himself. He would... He had worked as a driver for a, uh, a medical supply company and boosted stuff like plaster of Paris and slings and um, all this medical gear uh, from the company. And then he would, he would get himself up with a limp and with a sling and maybe, a, uh, maybe some kind of, of thing on his hand or whatever and then go kind of hobbling down a street, usually at night, usually around a campus – with his books or his, his whatever, his, his briefcase, knowing that a young woman, if they saw him in extremis, would probably come along and say, can I carry your books for you? Can I do this? Can I do that? And, of course, he would lead them to his car where he would hit them over the head and off he went. Uh, that was one. Another one was authority figure. The one girl that we know that uh, escaped him said that he had approached her as a uh, rent-a-cop uh, at a mall telling her that somebody had broken into her car and she had to come out and identify it. Uh, another time he posed as a fireman in the afternoon for a, to a teenage girl and he said that something to, something to do with it, you know, where her car was or something like that. So you're right. He understood how, how these relationships work and exploited that. He did have some instincts of just a, a pure animal predator, but I think that, you know, that must have grown out of something he either intuited or or worked very hard to, to understand. And I think I would tend towards the latter because I remember talking to him about his work in uh, in that uh, study in, in Seattle. And it, it had to do with uh, recidivism rates um, and that sort of thing. But what he did is he, he, he looked at a whole bunch of rap sheets from all these jurisdictions in the Northwest, and he figured out that, you know, a guy would get arrested for something, and his name would go on a rap sheet, and, but you could not figure out from the rap sheet whatever happened to him. Did he get convicted? Did he, you know, what? These, they were always were incomplete. Uh, and so you, the record keeping was subpar. And then the communication among these police departments was also um, non-existent. So a dedicated predator such as Bundy, with this maybe pre-conscious but nevertheless real uh, anger uh, in him, would go to work to take advantage of those exact things that he was that he was studying. He read detective magazines. He was a great fan of them, studying them for what kind of criminal advantage he could get from them. So. He was a very active student of his um, psychopathology. And since um, you've been contributing so much to the Netflix documentary series, um, is there anything that you felt the series didn't include or kind of profile in a right way? I'm very happy with the series. 
I was very eager to work with Joe Berlinger because I admired his material. We shared a determination to make this as honest and straightforward a series as possible. And the idea, which I think we, we achieved, was to get into Ted's head. And that I think that is the major contribution that this series is going to make. And I'm curious, um, since you are a journalist who has been reporting on true crimes for several decades, about what areas you're focusing on now in 2019? Well, I'm I'm sort of a reluctant serial killer, criminal reporter. I When I finished the TED book, I thought I was going to go back to work and be a, a magazine journalist, and I couldn't get anybody to hire me. So I, I sort of became a book writer uh, with a specialty in crime because of market forces i had you know i had to eat <laughs> and i do do other things it's not it's it's not a you know it's it's not my exclusive interest so i've i've got some stories uh, that are more conventional more you know people with with real motives greed anger more of a sort of a main, mainstream good old american killing but they tend to be more multi-level than than you know falling around one serial killer that's these are you know, there's a lot of participants in the in the in the plot or whatever the story is uh, that makes them complex and interesting to me. Well, Stephen, I want to thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. I uh, I think you taught me some things, uh, or or you encouraged me to think <laughs> in in different ways, and so I I owe you a, a, a thank you for that. It's um, I, I believe there's a lot of of substance to your analysis. Uh, And it would probably help for a lot of people in authority to learn how to think that way, or at least be open to that possibility, because the inability to think, to use the cliche, outside the box, was one of the major reasons they had trouble catching Ted, right? True, and any time it was a pleasure talking to you. That was Taylor and Stephen, and now let's hear from you. It's time for a dramatic reading of your most dramatic social media reactions. This tweet is from at Susie Meister. Ted Bundy is evidence that a white guy can be mediocre in every way and a psychopath, and people still think he's exceptional. This tweet is from director Edgar Wright. Finished Conversations with a Killer, the Ted Bundy tapes. Though I was pretty familiar with the story, I still found this confounding, compelling case study that made me profoundly sad and chilled me to the bone. I don't know how numb you have to be to not be affected by it. Here's a thread that Billy Jensen started. As we all binge the Bundy tapes on Netflix and share the trailer for the Zac Efron movie, please remember the victims. These women all had hopes and dreams. They should all have movies made about them. I always try to remember what these monsters took away. Hashtag Ted Bundy tapes. The rest of the thread memorializes each victim. If you want to share your thoughts on any upcoming episode, make sure to find us on social media. Just search for You Can't Make This Up Netflix. We're the ones with the shiny blue check mark. Before we let you go, we've got one more treat for you. It's time for What You Watching. It's where we find out what the people on this episode are watching on Netflix. I have just finished watching Roma twice, and it just knocked my socks off. What a wonderful movie. I saw all these huge ads in the in, in the uh, New York Times, and I said, "I got to go see that thing." And then I said, "No, it's on Netflix." That, you know, it was wonderful, great. That's 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 my latest thrill. 
I've been watching um, Sex Education on Netflix, which I really think is this beautiful series that allows Generation Z um, to honestly talk about their sex lives and their reproductive health. So I know for me, as kind of like the last age of the millennials. I wish that I grew up um, with accessible content in which people like me were talking about their sex lives in a healthy, positive fashion instead of relying on the internet or urban legends or myths. So I think it's been a really beautiful and accessible content in which youth now who are so multifaceted and have different intersection identities are able to watch something like that and it relates completely to their lived experience as someone who is growing and into their sexuality and gender identity. So I think it's a really beautiful um, content. And that's it for this week's episode. We'll be back next month with a new true crime series for you to add to your watch list. You can find this show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review this show. It helps other people find it. It also makes us feel all warm and fuzzy inside. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Pineapple Street Media and Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue. I'm Ray Vada, and thank you for listening.